At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar? And what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I was uh, driving down the road the other day and I was listening to something on the news. And this guy says that his message for, for young people was, Live your truth. And I just hate that statement because, you know, the whole point of truth is that it is true, which means it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't vary from person to person. Now, the Apostle Paul has just spent a little bit of time dealing with areas that are not dealing with truth. They're dealing with gray areas. And there are those kinds of areas. But when it comes to truth itself, it's, truth is not really flexible that way. There is no your truth or my truth. There's just the truth. And you know what? The fact of the matter is, is even the people that are making that statement, if you push them on it, you're going to find that that's true even in their case. Because I found myself as I was driving down the road listening to this, and he says, live your truth. And I thought, really? Are you still in favor of that if I'm a bigot? Are you still in favor of that if I have anger management issues? Now, I'm not claiming any of these things are good and that you should be these. But the fact of the matter is, if I'm going to be true to just who I am, if that applies to everybody, then you're going to deal with people that do have serious anger issues. Are you telling them just be who you are? You do have people that deal with a white supremacy or on the other side of that, the Antifa thing. Really, that's okay? Just You're encouraging them to just find your fulfillment in that? Live that out? Now, obviously, that person would not agree with those things. But you see, that's the whole point, is this whole idea of living your truth is a big fallacy. It just it falls apart. And this hyper-tolerance that we try to promote as a culture is self-defeating. Do you realize that when somebody stands up in the name of tolerance and says to somebody else, says, don't judge, you realize they were just judging that person by telling them not to judge? 
there's no way to be consistent in that. You see, there's, there cannot be this huge variety of truth and it's all true and just live out whatever your truth is because things contradict, things conflict with one another. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting back to at this point. He has been taking some time dealing with some gray areas where it really doesn't matter. It's kind of like color, right? It really doesn't matter if your favorite color is red and somebody else's is blue. Who cares? Those are not areas of truth. Those are areas of taste. And so that those things just don't matter. But now he brings the Corinthians back to the point where he says, you know what, that doesn't mean everything's a gray area. A lot of life is black and white. And so he shows them some examples of that from looking in the Old Testament. And what is he doing? He's not calling the Corinthians to live out their truth. In fact, if you look at what the Corinthians were already doing, you might think that they were all trying to live out their truth. But that's not the way it works. It doesn't lead to a good result. It doesn't lead to a good outcome. And it is completely contrary to the Word of God. You see, all throughout the Word of God, God is never calling anybody to live out their truth. God is always calling you to live the truth. And it's by getting into the Word of God that we begin to learn what that truth is and how we've all violated it. Which is exactly why we need Christ. He came because we all have broken truth with God. And He came to lay down His life for us so that we could be forgiven of that, so that our sin penalty is paid by someone other than us, by Jesus Christ. And so now we have access to God through Christ. We have acceptance before Him. So as we look at it here this morning, the Apostle Paul is coming back and he's focusing these people in and he's calling them to live out the truth. Well, what he does in the first part of this, just notice back with me in the first five or six verses here. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And what's he talking about? He's talking about their forefathers. In fact, he's remembering all the way back to the time of Moses. And he's saying, let's look back at our forefathers. What do we learn from those guys? He's going to point out five privileges that they had. All the privileges coincide with something that the Corinthians have in their day and that we have in our day. Because what he's going to do is he's going to line those things up with their baptism and participating in the Lord's Supper, which we get to do next week. And so three of them are going to line up with their baptism. Two of them are going to line up with the Lord's Supper. And it's going to make a connection with the Corinthians. So notice what he does here. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So he's referring to that time when Moses went into Egypt and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. God brought ten plagues upon Pharaoh to make the story short. And he brought Israel out with a strong hand. Pharaoh chased after Israel. They came up to the Red Sea. And God parted the waters and led Israel across on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army followed in behind and God brought the waters back over the top of them. And then after they got across, there was the cloud. The cloud was the presence of God. They put up the tabernacle, God's tent. And at night, a pillar of fire shone over the tabernacle. And in the day, a pillar of a cloud shone over the tabernacle. And so they were all under the cloud, the presence of God. Now, what does he compare these two things to? He compares that to the to a baptism. He says they were all baptized into Moses through the sea and under the cloud. Now, you see the comparison that he's making. The Corinthians, now the baptism is going to ring true for them. They weren't there for crossing the Red Sea, and they weren't there for being under the cloud, but they have experienced a baptism. And so the Apostle Paul is taking that experience of the Israelites and saying, look, in that sense, they were both under. Baptism means to be submersed, to be put under. They were both under the cloud and in the sea as God brought them through. They were baptized into Moses. The Corinthians have been baptized into Christ. 
Now, it goes on to talk about what they ate. It says in verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. When the Israelites came through the Red Sea and then into the wilderness, and God led them in the wilderness, they didn't have anything to eat. And so God provided for them miraculously. He provided for them the manna. The word manna in Hebrew means what is it? They didn't didn't even know what it was. But it was some kind of a bread-like substance right from heaven that God provided for them to be able to eat. It was this miraculous spiritual food. Now, it was actually physical, but it has a spiritual impact. And then, what did they drink? Well, on at least two different occasions, they drank from a rock. The first time, God tells Moses, go up and hit the rock, and the rock will give you water, and they'll have plenty to drink. And Moses did that. The second time, Moses is told, go up and speak to the rock. Just ask the rock for water, and it'll give it to you. Now, Moses violated that. He went up and he hit the rock again instead of speaking to it. And because of that, he didn't get to go into the promised land. He went home to be with God in heaven before Israel went into the promised land. Why was he punished in that way? Well, it's because he ruined the picture. God was drawing a picture. Israel needed water to live. In the wilderness, they got it from a rock. Hit the rock, out comes the water. The second time, just supposed to speak to the rock. Why? Because the rock is a picture of Christ. It's life in the desert. It's life in the wilderness. And how do we get that water? Well, once Christ was smitten, He was beaten for our transgressions. He was punished for our sins. And so He took that beating upon Himself, that crucifixion upon Himself, and by that, we get the water of life. But then after that, what happens? Does Christ suffer every time we need forgiveness of sin? Absolutely not. He was suffered once for our sins. After that, we just ask Him for the forgiveness that we experience. And so Moses kind of ruined that picture. And so to make it stick, God punished Moses. And I think that draws it to our attention. You know, Jesus used the same thing, the same event, to refer to Himself. In John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, now here's the context of this. The religious leaders have just come to Jesus and they're arguing with Him about who He is. And the religious leader says, we know that God spoke to Moses, we're not so sure about you. We know that God spoke to Moses because God gave Moses manna in the wilderness and our forefathers lived off that for 40 years. And so we know God spoke to Moses. Jesus' response to them is, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice the change in tense there. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, but my Father gives Present tense. Right now, He's giving to you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Now, here's the deal. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying, you have been baptized into Christ who that bread was pointing towards who that water back in the wilderness was pointing towards. You participate regularly in the Lord's Supper where you participate in the bread and the wine that is picturing the the body and the blood of Christ that was put to death on that cross for you. So you have a similar experience in your rituals to what they had, but now watch what the outcome is. The end of verse 5. He says, "...they were all strewn across the wilderness." is what that word literally means. They died in the wilderness. The point is, the Israelites, a whole generation of people came out of Egypt on their way to the promised land and out of all those people, probably a couple million, 
that came out of Egypt headed toward the promised land, how many people made it into the promised land? Two, Joshua and Caleb. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's, he's warning these Corinthians because there, tend to, there tends to be a tendency sometimes for people to get religious. To get religious about our faith. That is, I go through these certain rituals and so I'm okay, but then their life might not be consistent with those rituals. When you look at Israel's experience in the wilderness, and that's what he goes through next, he goes through four, maybe five different occasions in here that are all found mostly within the book of Numbers and one of them in Exodus chapter 32. Places where Israel was unfaithful to God. God brought them out. He delivered them out of Egypt. He rescued them. He provided for them. And what did they do? They worshipped another god by making golden calves. And they participated in sexual immorality in joining with the Midianites. And they worshipped other gods at that time too. And they also challenged God's leadership in Moses. And in the days of Korah, they had an outright rebellion against God and His plan for them. In other words, they were living inconsistently with the experience that they'd had in experiencing their salvation with God. Well, the Corinthians are doing the same thing. The Corinthians have participated in baptism and they participate regularly in the Lord's Supper. But here's the deal. Their lives weren't lining up with it. Their lives were not consistent with their baptism. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 6, there's a question that's asked. If the grace of God can always outdo our sin, then why not just live in sin and let the grace of God do what it does? Why not just keep on living in sin since grace is going to cover me? And the Apostle Paul says, God forbid. And you know what his answer is? How can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? And then he goes into talking about their relationship with Christ and their baptism. Because your baptism symbolizes your relationship with Christ. This is what I believe. Christ died and was buried and rose again. That's what baptism does. We are buried and we rose again. And it goes on to say that I am now dead to my sins and alive to God. Now here's the question. Is our life that we're living day in and day out, is it consistent with that picture of our baptism? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Lord's Supper. When we sit down and we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have the elements before us, and we say, you know what, let's examine ourselves, because that's what he tells them to do later in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's examine ourselves and see if our life lines up with what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper. You see, otherwise what ends up happening is we end up being religious but not right with God. We go through rituals that we think make us acceptable, but we live in a way that is not acceptable. And that's, that's exactly that. It's just not acceptable. And that's what it says. All those people died in the wilderness. Now, he's afraid for the Corinthians because there are other gods being worshipped in Corinth. Look at the last part of the passage that we read. He says, you cannot partake of the Lord's Supper and a supper for a demon. That's crazy. They don't come together. You cannot worship God and another God at the same time. You just can't do it in the same life. It's inconsistent. And so he's afraid for them that they will not live in a way that's consistent with their baptism and with the Lord's Supper that they do on a regular basis. And that's his challenge. And that's the same challenge that he's given to us today. Does our life reflect the baptism that we've experienced, being dead to sin and alive to God? Is it consistent with the Lord's Supper where we recognize that Jesus died to set us free, not to be free to participate in our sins, but set us free from those sins. Now, right in the middle of that whole passage, we get a real key to living out that true life. 
You know what? It all boils down to kind of one thing. How do you handle temptation? That's the doorway into every sin is temptation, right? You don't participate in a sin that you're not first tempted to do that in. And so, how do we deal with temptation? That's, and that's right what he deals with in the middle of this passage in verses 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you see, right in the middle of this passage where He's afraid for them, He, he gives them the key. Handling temptation. How do you live out the truth? is how you respond to temptation. You know, temptation is actually the same word that in other passages is translated test. The tempting things that come to us, they can be one or the other. They can either be a test that strengthens us because we overcome it and proves our strength, or they can be a temptation that may bring about our failure. Really, the answer to the whether it is one or the other lies within us. How we respond to it. And that's what he does is helps us respond to it. Now let's look at four helps that he gives us within the passage. Four helps for handling temptation. And we'll go through them a little bit quickly. The very first one is humility. You see, we are so much more vulnerable to temptation when we feel like we're strong. When we are proud. In fact, the Bible even warns us in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This passage in verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, at the time where you feel like you got things in, in hand and you're strong, you can handle this, you can take this, you know, that's when you better be careful. That's when you need a little bit of humility because you're probably not quite as strong as you're feeling at the moment. And you need to be careful. You know, AA was built upon some biblical principles, although I think they go a little bit too far with some of it. But you know what I do like about it? They recognize that I have a weakness in this area and I can never let my guard down on that weakness. Christians, one of the best ways that will help you to handle temptation is to recognize that you can never let your guard down. You're not going to get to the point where you have just got things so in hand that everything's going to bounce off you. Now, you are going to grow stronger. But even, even when you start to feel strong, you need to be careful, be humble, towards yourself in dealing with these situations. You know, in Luke chapter 22, it talks about Peter. Peter, at a moment of, of his pride, feeling pretty strong, he tells the Lord, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And what was Jesus' response? You feeling kind of strong, Peter? Because actually, before the end of the night, you're going to deny me three times. So I don't know that you should be feeling quite that strong at the moment, Peter. That's exactly what happened. Peter did end up denying the Lord three times that night. He did cave. At a moment where he was feeling so proud, he became deflated. We need to be careful that we don't get too proud. I think of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 2 and 3 is letters to, to many different churches, seven different churches. One of the churches, the church at Laodicea, gets this in their letter. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, but realize, he tells them, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, here's a group of people, an entire church, that he says, You say, I, I've got everything I need. I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. 
And God says, you don't realize all the things you don't have. This is the same church that he would write to them and say, you know what, you're lukewarm. You're not cold or hot. You're lukewarm. I feel like spitting you up. And at the end of the letter, he'll tell them, you know what, I'm, I'm standing outside the door knocking. Can you imagine that? Picture that here. It's like Jesus is standing out at that door, knocking on the door. In other words, what's the picture? You've closed me out. You've shut me out. I want in. And they were thinking, how are they doing spiritually? Oh, we don't need nothing. We're good. Humility will help you to overcome those temptations because it doesn't set you up for a fall. That's why in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, when it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are stronger, should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But even the strong should do then what? Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. You see, when we are feeling strong, that's when we really need to watch out because we're kind of setting ourselves up on a pedestal which can kind of be easily tipped over sometimes. So we need humility before God and before temptation. Well, then also, we also notice a little bit of logic helps in these kinds of situations as well. A little bit of logic. He says, look, there is not a temptation that you're going to face that's not common. In other words, other people have experienced the same thing that you are experiencing. You know, many times I've sat down with people that are discouraged and feel just beaten up in their life. And when you talk to them, when you bring up a solution or a Scripture passage, they always have an excuse of why, oh, that's why this won't work in my situation. That's why this won't work in my situation. That's why every once in a while in dealing with somebody like that, I get to the point where I just feel like saying, look, all right, congratulations. You have finally had the first situation in the whole world in the last 6,000 years of human history that nobody else has experienced and we don't have an answer for in the Bible. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic because the fact is there isn't a situation that you'll go through that millions of other people haven't already gone through or are in the process of right now. It's kind of like buying a new car. You ever buy a new car and then say, wow, I never realized there were so many of this car out on the road. Because now all of a sudden you notice it. we got kind of a, a tough issue in our family that we've been dealing with for like eight years that we'd like to see go away. Or actually we'd like to see come back. It's about a son that's gone away and he won't come back. But I can't believe how many people I've met in these last eight years that are in just the same kind of situation that we are. I had no idea that there were so many families out there experiencing the same kind of thing, dealing with the same exact type situation as what we're going through. There isn't any temptation that comes to you that hasn't been experienced by thousands, even millions of people down through time and and even right now. Which means, what is he trying to do with this? He's saying, you can do it. Other people have done this. You can do this. You can do it. Now he's not raising you up by your own bootstraps. He's just telling you, you're not in anything that's not insurmountable. And as you trust in God, which is going to be our next point, if you trust in Him, you lean on Him, you can do this. As you try to live out your life in Christ... You can do this. You know what else it means? It means there's a whole bunch of resources floating out there somewhere that will be able to help you. Right? It's, it's kind of like comfort. When I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about the God of all comfort. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says, God is the God of all comfort. And then He comforts me. And then you know what? That comfort that He comforted me with, I'm able to take and use to comfort somebody else. And they're able to take that comfort and use to comfort somebody else. And the same process happens with temptation. God says there isn't a temptation that you face that isn't common 
Other people are facing it, have faced it. And so you know what? There is a great resource. Tap into those people. Find out what they did. Find out how they overcame the struggle. Find out how they beat the temptation. Tap into their wisdom. And that's just simple logic. With 6,000 years of of human history behind us, you're really not going to find something new. You're not going to have a temptation that just crept up on the world out of nowhere. God says they're all common. But then also, the next help is to trust. Because then he points us to God. He points us to God and says, God is faithful. Our temptations attack our faithfulness on God, but it says God is faithful to you. In other words, He's going to be there for you. He's going to give you what you need. And the other thing is He's given you as a guarantee. He says He's guaranteed you that there will not be a temptation that you're going to come across that you can't handle. He's not going to allow you to be attempted beyond what you're able. And the awesome thing about that is that means that if there's a temptation that is knocking at your door, you can handle it. You know that you can succeed over this temptation. It's a guarantee. God is faithful. He won't let you go beyond that. And so you can enter that knowing that you can win. And if you learn to rely, you learn to trust, depend on Him for His strength, He can bring you through that. You you can win. And then lastly, wisdom. And the reason I say wisdom is because He says, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, why did I call this wisdom? It doesn't say wisdom anywhere in the verse, but it does take some wisdom to know how to apply this. Wisdom means knowing when it's time to take that escape. It says God won't allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but He will do what? He will provide a way of escape. He will provide an exit door so that you can be able to endure it. Now, how do you endure it? You know, there's a couple of commentators that I came across and highly respected by me. Otherwise, obviously, I wouldn't be reading them probably. But highly respected commentators that said, you know what, that's why God's, your method of temptation, the only way to get through temptation is to go through it. We don't run from it. We don't hide from it. The only way to go through temptation is to go through it. I think that's exactly the opposite of what this is saying. He's saying, God won't tempt you beyond what you're able, but He will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. In other words, the way that you endure it is by taking the escape. Here's the way I look at it. Some temptations you're just kind of locked in and there's no way out. Well, then I know I can beat it. Other temptations, there's an exit door that I can see. Take the exit. God's put that there so that you can endure it, so that you can overcome. That is your way of enduring at this time. That is your way of escape. You see, so many times we end up falling because we blew right by the exit door and we didn't recognize it. We put ourselves in situations that we're not ready for when we pass the exit door. But God has promised there will always be that exit door. Be wise enough to take it. Take that exit door. In fact, when you think about it, the whole context is hinging on that. Back in chapter 6, when we dealt with sexual immorality, what was the word that he used for avoiding sexual immorality? Flee. Flee. In this passage right here, right after that verse, it goes into verse 14. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is the way to deal with sexual immorality? Flee. Take the the exit door. Get out of that situation. What is the way to escape the temptation toward idolatry? Flee. Get out of there. Escape. And so it requires wisdom. So you know what? God is not looking... For religious people, just to add, for people to just add religion on top of their already ungodly lifestyle, what God is looking for is people who will respond in faith. And what does faith do? Faith 
gets baptized into Christ as a symbol of their faith, and then lives consistently with that picture of baptism. Faith participates in the Lord's Supper and lives a life consistent with the principles found in the Lord's Supper. In other words, it's not about being religious. It's about being right with God. It's about being acceptable before Him. And if we continue in a path of unrighteousness, no amount of religion will make you acceptable in His eyes. Only through Christ do we experience that righteousness. And only in Christ do we have the power to rise up above these temptations and the promise that, it will, that we will always be equal to that task and the help that we need to fight off those temptations. Only in Christ can we live in His righteousness and live out the truth that God calls us to.